The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. Today we're sitting here at an incredibly sunny London town here at the 2017 Innovate Finance Global Summit. My name is David Breer and today we have our 11FS colleagues, Simon Taylor. Say hey. Hi, Simon. Simon? What was that? Wow. <laughs> wow. Have you been drinking? <laughs> I'm Simon, but nice Hello. to be with you Good again, you. David. And with Jason Bates. Jason, say hey. Hey. <laughs> uh, Chris sends his apologies. Unfortunately, he's doing his ambassadorial duties over in India this week. So this week we have an amazing lineup. We're joined by Lawrence Wintermeyer, CEO of Innovate Finance. Say hey Lawrence. Hey Lawrence. We have Nick Ogden, the Executive Chairman of Clearbank. Say hey Nick. Hi Nick. And uh, we have Richard Piers, the Director of Financial Services Industry at Microsoft. Say hey Richard, thanks Hello. for coming back. Hello. Uh, we have John Edge, the Chairman of Identity 2020. Say hey John. Hello, good afternoon. And we have Claire Kamajan, the Director of Innovation at Lloyds Banking Group. Say hey, Claire. Hello, everybody. Let's get into it with the show. So, Lawrence, let's kick off with you. I'm sort of no word of a lie, really. You've you've kind of ticked one of my uh, childhood dreams, really. I had two people I looked up to, one of them Shaquille O'Neal, who, for everybody who doesn't know, a basketball player, and the other one was Tim Berners-Lee. So today I got to tick the box of listening to Tim. So thanks very much for that. Well, we're delighted to have Sir Tim here. Um, I, I understand that he really doesn't do many speaking engagements these days, and as a not-for-profit, he certainly agreed to come along to this event uh, in that he's supportive of, of what we do. But I, I couldn't agree with you more, a, a hero of mine. And, and what, what's extraordinary, you know, we try to put together the, uh, the conference for our members that really puts these sort of geeks in front of the community and the people that are doing things in, in, in fintech and, and, and digital. And I think for those listeners that weren't at the summit, it was a pretty good geek fest because Sir Tim really uh, gives his unfiltered views and uh, discusses them in a way that, you know, you don't see on broadcast television. So I think that most of the people in, in, in the audience would have found that very refreshing. Absolutely. Um, and I guess one of the things that's come out of today is the new report that you guys have got in partnership with Deloitte. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the report? Sure. It's the Global Fintech Hub Federation, which we put together with uh, SWIFT. So it's the voluntary connection of all of the global fintech hubs. Uh, Deloitte powers it with a report where they benchmark the hubs, uh, particularly on a composite of city index, ease of doing business index and innovation index. 
Uh, we produced a report uh, for Cybos in the autumn and had 20 hubs. We've had 24 hubs come on board. Uh, so we've been overwhelmed with the response. And I think it's available online if you can uh, direct people. I'm not even sure where it is, but it'll be on some of the digital properties kicking around here. And, and it's just a fantastic report. Um, I think from, from our perspective here in the UK, we still have, in this case, the highest ranking, which is the, the lowest score of 11, along with Singapore, um, which goes to indicate just how strong this ecosystem is. So, Lawrence, you had a number of speakers um, alongside um, the, the announcement of the report this morning, sort of talking post-Brexit, post-Trump. Um, there was definitely uh, an initial reaction where the London fintech ecosystem was seen as being maybe not as strong, maybe not as desirable. Seems to be this morning, it felt like a bit of a tour de force of people saying, actually, the fundamentals are still strong. Consider all of the positives. What are your takeaways from some of the keynotes this morning? I think the most important thing from my perspective is that if you're in between the US or China on a venture capital fintech front, um, you're subscale or more than likely subscale on, on venture capital. That actually applies for talent as well. If you're in between you know, China and the UK, you're likely subscale on talent. Uh, it's interesting to see the India hub coming up. So I think we'll pay close attention to that. But London has talent in spades and always has had talent in spades. And, 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 and not just financial services, mathematics, technology, but design. Um, so you know, we're really good at this digital thing. And when you speak to most investors, regardless of where they own the investment stack, venture capital or institutional investors, investors invest in talent. Investors don't invest in financial services passporting schemes. So I think if you look at the volume of venture investment we saw in the Velocity in Q3, you know, in my own language, the way you and I speak about it, look, Brexit was just really priced into the market, you know, you know, very, very early. Um, however, our own members are cautiously optimistic in that we need to maintain, we need to keep, you know, maintaining this talent uh, pool. And so we need to be able to open up STEM and design, uh, you know, visas really, or tech visas for, for everyone in the world, I mean, not just Europeans, we need more, we need more STEM and design people here uh, over the next 25 years. Um, and we need to increasingly make sure that we're attracting in, in investors and really improving the quality investments, uh, you know, that we, we need to be making in the digital economy over the next 25 so years. That's a really interesting point. Uh, more talent and more visas, I think, is really loud and clear. And also increasing where the investment's coming from and the sheer scale of investment, because that has always been a, a challenge for us. In, in the city of London, where we have sovereign wealth funds you know, looking for action, we have pension funds, we have asset managers, but a lot of that isn't flowing into, into the fintech space quite so efficiently. Well, I'll only say this, none of those really understand how to take an allocation of something that is illiquid and, and you know, doesn't have either the risk measures or the, you know, the attributes that, that, that you know, venture does. So uh, that, that, that's actually part of the challenge. And, and I guess this is all sort of bringing to uh, to bear really about sort of international collaboration. You know how obviously there's a a real mix of people that are here today. This isn't just us in uh, in the UK sort of uh, having a bit of a rah rah about how good we are. But I think that's the theme really of of everything that's happening this week. To be honest with you, in terms of how people can very much learn from what's happened in the UK and and to benefit globally from a financial perspective. So. Nick, I'm not sure if you've you've seen much of this, or uh, I know you you spoke early on this morning, didn't you? Um, tell us a little bit more about what you uh, what you spoke about. 
I think it's, there's two interesting things, actually. Let's just step back in history for a second, if that will help you. Back in um, 1995, really back in history, I apologise for that, um, we launched a project called Barclays Square with Barclays Bank, which was the world's first e-commerce initiative. Uh, none of us knew what we were doing. It just sounded like a good idea at the time. And um, Barclays went out and got Sainsbury's and Tesco's and Argos and various other big retailers to come into this e-commerce shopping null to see whether people would buy from it. And... Off we went, launched it, and within a few days of launching this fantastic super-duper thing, we were getting emails in from people saying, can you tell us how much these things cost? So my immediate assumption was to go and kick the webmaster because something must be broken. But the reality of it was that the when we moved into the internet back in those early days, we were moving from a society that understood that if you were going between countries, you bought a local newspaper, you went to a foreign exchange bureau, you had a currency fix. When we lifted that up into the uh, ecosystem of the commercial internet or the internet as then, right, that fix disappeared. And so if you happen to be in Sweden looking at a shop in the UK and deciding whether you're actually going to buy a set of weightlifting equipment from Argos in 1995 online, which the chances of that happening were somewhat small, and it was presented to you as a £300 purchase, it meant nothing to you. And so right the way back at that stage, we knew that we had to change the way the internet worked so that people could have make a value for judgment decision and understand what they were buying the cost of it and the cost of implications to them. We roll on now to where we are in 2017. A lot of things have changed, a lot of superb developments have occurred. But the globalization of financial services and the ability to transact internationally is still staying way back there as one of the areas that has to get resolved. Uh, as I said this morning in my keynote, it is absolutely nuts that we accept that international and domestic payments will get lost. And we just accept that that's going to happen when the reality is it doesn't need to happen. And it happens because of legacy decisions, legacy structures, uh, lack of straight through processing, KYC, AML, financial crime policies, um, which are being constantly reviewed and changed. And so I think that in relation to how we're going to move forward, there's going to be a coming together consolidation uh, over the course of the next two to three years in relation to financial collaboration uh, between banks, which of course ClearBank is one, um, to change how this works, to improve the, the service for who effectively are customers rather than running the global financial infrastructure to suit the banks. Sounds great. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about ClearBank as well? Because we've, uh, Simon, particularly over the last couple of weeks of uh, FinTech Insider has been quite gushing over you guys. So, uh, Oh, my God. Sort I of must leave. Thing I going leave. On here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about ClearBank. Okay, well, I just passed a serviette across to say gushing. <laughs> um, I'm not even sorry. Like, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the idea behind ClearBank sort of came out of a chance conversation back in early 2014. Uh, as you know, I found it well paid, been involved in the whole financial tech space probably for too long, some people would say. And we were um, at a conference and um, effectively talking about a speech that the interim payment service regulator was about to make about access to markets. So I was a bit cheeky and I said, well, that's going to be a very short speech then because there isn't very much access to markets. <laughs> and she agreed. She agreed that it was a challenge. And I said, Do you know what? I don't get. I said, if you look back through the UK, you can see that we've had the Crookshank report in 2000. We then had the global financial crisis. We've had everything else that's gone on. Nothing's really changed. 
Lights came on a little bit in 2009 when the payment service regulations arrived and there was this vision and chance that you could actually start to change things. But at the core, absolutely at the core, nothing's happened. And in 1960, we had 16 clearing banks providing theoretically competitive services. And just through natural market consolidation, not some grand plot, because that requires planning and intelligence, and that didn't happen. This was just natural market consolidation. We ended up with four incumbent banks responsible for clearing services effectively and the agency banking services in the UK. So I said, there must be a political or regulatory reason why there's never been a new clearing bank. So, because that's the only thing that seems to make sense, because I'm not unique in having this idea, I'm certain. The lady in question said, well, I'll, I'll go and ask the question. That's quite interesting. Um, and as at most conferences we go to, we meet interesting people and you never hear from them or see them again. Um, but God bless her, Mary Starks came back to me three weeks after that conference. She'd gone and she'd bothered to go and talk to the Treasury, the Bank of England, all the regulators about this mad guy she'd met with this stupid idea to create a new clearing bank. Uh, and the end of the conversation I'd had with her, I'd said that if I thought there was a chance, I'd finance it. So that was the killer and the stupid moment in the whole thing. And she came back and said, here's the contact of the FCA. We agree that there should be a new clearing bank. No guarantees that you're going to get there. No help. But give it a go. We did. Brilliant. Amazing, like say, fortuitous. I wonder what uh, companies are going to be created off the back of people meeting at this conference. Eh? Yeah, indeed. I think. Well, I said that you know, it's everything to go for. I mean, there is there are no rules, there are no barriers, only those that you create yourself. I think it's super interesting. What I like about this is there are a lot of uh, kind of talks of APIs in the market. There are a lot of talks of giving people access to the underlying payments infrastructure. PSD two has a lot of hype around it, but here is something that is a, a bona fide clearing bank. Uh, that has access to everything, you know, has everything from the PRA, the PRS, the uh, Bank of England, the FCA, like all of that, and it's API first, where every other bank is sort of doing so many other things that they're, they're not naturally aligned to doing just that one thing really well. So that focus to me is, is, is interesting, but Jason has a counterpoint. No, no, I, I guess I've got a question as to who the customers will be, because, um, well, I know Starling Bank, as is the 13th member of the faster payment. So obviously there's changes there with, with new challenger banks joining on. They're API driven. Lots of fintechs could build on that. So I, I guess I'm interested in, you know, 250 years on, who are the end customers to, to a new clearing bank? Believe it or not, banks, financial institutions, building societies, regulated businesses, businesses that you founded recently businesses you've just mentioned a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, it's all well and good to say that you, you want to get access to a faster payment system because you actually need to use it. And I agree completely with that. I'm disclosed publicly. I'm a director of faster payments. And so, you know, I, we open access is very, very important for us. The problem is it's in incredibly complex. And to go through the process of getting central bank accounts and all the rest of it set up is very complicated, very arduous, and actually has to be. Because at the end of the day, whilst we are all supporting innovation and technology in this room, we'll be the first ones to scream if our money gets stolen. And so, you know, we have to, it has to be done correctly. Where we started from, where I started from in 2014, was that the only way that this was going to work is if we created an exact mirror, identical mirror, of the four incumbents. We had all of that capability and no reliance on them. Right, and so it's not just faster payments, it's BACs, CHAPs, it's five of the international payment schemes, it's SEPA, it's all of those different capabilities, all condensed down into a state-of-the-art uh, processing platform. 
we enable then or deliver that to our, our customers um, very simply. They open a bank account because we're a bank. That's all we can do. We can't wave a magic wand and do something else. We open a bank account. Then as opposed to giving them a piggy bank for them to you know, say, welcome to our bank, we give them an API that's designed around ISO 2022. And they integrate that once. And then they consume from us the services that they, they need. And they, they don't have to worry about the transformation layers, all the other stuff that goes on in the background, which frankly, I wish we didn't have to worry about because it's a pain, but we take care of all of that. Or they're a building society or the credit union or a electronic money issuer. And they want to deliver sort code based current account services. And if they're legally able, allowed to uh, lending services and all the rest of it. So we give them a core banking platform. So as opposed to a statement folder, they get a core banking platform. That's it. That's it. That's all we do. That's the end. Nick, right. then am I right in saying it's just the platform? It's not a banking license. So somebody can have you as a correspondent bank if they're an international bank. So if I'm a Spanish bank or a, 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 some foreign bank and I wanted access to UK clearing, I couldn't come to Clearbank for that or I could? Correct. Okay. So, I mean, so the it's, it's all thing, the tools. It's all the tools. And one of the really interesting things, just jumping back to a point on Brexit, is that we all sit on a little rock in the middle of the English Channel looking at Europe, thinking, oh, God, what this is going to mean to us. The absolute opposite conversations are being had in Europe, looking back at this little rock over here. And a number of international banks have come to us and said, well, is this right? You're independent, neutral. You provide all of these services and you're regulated. Can you help us out? And the answer is yes. It seems like there's a there's a new market here. The bank as a platform, the you know the bank with the technology connected into payment systems, connected into the Bank of England settlement accounts, all that kind of thing. Uh, and we're seeing Rails Bank and Solaris and you guys. How do you see that market developing? Do you think there'll be a whole new set of players specifically as sort of infrastructure banks? Um, you cannot be an infrastructure bank in the UK. You're not allowed to be. The Lord prohibits that. Okay. So you have to be a bank bank, uh, which means a real bank. That's similar in many countries around the world at the moment. It may well change, but at the moment, you know, if, you've got, if you carry the name bank, it's associated with you being a bank. Um, I think that um, part of the development that we did way back was that we developed our platform on the Microsoft Azure platform in the cloud. And we also developed private data centers for connections back into the UK payments net using the Microsoft Azure cloud. The reason why we did that all right, was to cover off a number of areas. Cybersecurity being top probably of that list because we needed to have um, very, very strong cybersecurity. We could not be in a position where we were hacked and we could not afford to go and raise the funding to put in place all of the technology and services that a large organization like Microsoft could do. All right. Thanks, Nick. I mean, thinking of things that are really uh, hard to do and, and unlikely to have happened, digital identity, I think, has to be another one of those grand challenges like uh, getting clearing uh, access into you know, kind of the the UK. Um, John, talk to us a little bit about how the industry and policymakers could increase access to digital identities and also talk to us a little bit about what the problem with identity is at the moment and, and why that might be hurting. Okay, I think um, we can follow this on from, from Nick's comments, and there's a very simple statement here that actually um, Dakota Gruner, who's the executive director of ID2020, brought to the market, which is to talk about market failures. What we don't talk enough about is market failure. So I'll give an example from another industry. Gavi is the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations. Around 80 countries couldn't afford vaccines. It's a technology it affected lots of children. It wasn't affordable because they had uh, annual funding rounds versus multi-year funding. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation seeded 
Gavi as an organization to fund vaccines. And now 60% of all children on the planet who've been vaccinated have been vaccinated by Gavi. But what they did was address a market failure. And what Nick's been talking about is a market failure. If something isn't working in a market and it's something of scale, it's because the market can't solve it. It's not because individuals at Barclays, Microsoft, Accenture don't sense it. It's that it can't be done. So let's talk about identity. So this was the thing I was talking about before, if we make it a bit more lighthearted, the naked squats. This sounds amazing. Uh, I need to see the pictures in this presentation. Well, you don't necessarily want to go that far. But um, if I do naked squats in the gym, I'm going to get thrown out. Is, this is an if or a when? If. Uh, if, if not from experience. No? Not from experience. But if I do, I get thrown out. I will have my credential revoked, my access to the gym. I should not have my identity revoked. And we often mix identity and credential. So when governments and regulators get, shall we say, excited about an identity conversation, and when we talk about the digital identity, what they're really getting excited about is digital credentials. Well, we offer passports. Well, passport is not identity. Identity is who we are and how we behave. Second one's really important in a digital world. But we, we have a market failure because the only way in human history to be able to give identity to somebody has been through a credential. And because of the distribution of phones and because of the advance of new technology, we are at a point in human history where we have a way for people to have an identity that can define who they are independent of a third party issuing a credential. And that is a paradigm change that will likely unlock the 2 billion people who can't get access to financial services, the 230 million children under the age of five that don't have a birth certificate and are at the risk of trafficking. A disturbing stat, um, last year Europol reported 88,000 children entered Europe unaccompanied and an estimated 10,000 have gone missing expected to be in the sex industry. So where we live, 10,000 little kids have gone missing because they couldn't be issued an identity because they don't belong to a government. But that's because we're talking about issuing a credential. They could have a digital identity. And then we get into the construct of who owns digital identity. Now, interestingly, if we start within the legacy systems, we will get stuck in that spaghetti for years which is why something like ClearBank's important because it demonstrates an ability to address a market failure. Now, Microsoft are a significant supporter of ID2020, which has the ambition to be the Gavi for identity. If we, if we go on the question of what can industry and policymakers do to wrap up this sort of initial piece, policymakers need to understand that identity isn't credential and enable identity innovation. Industry needs to grapple or grasp with that investing in identity isn't a quarterly return. But there's one and a half billion people without an identity. There's two billion people without access to financial services. If we give away identity, then we create enormous new markets. And if, for instance, you then have a bank that has a clearing license, that then people with appropriate identity can access innovation, you start to transform the nature of financial services. So reasonably small idea. <laughs> reasonably ambitious as well. But I, mean, I think it makes perfect sense. Um, Nick, you, you have a follow-on point. 
Yeah, I was just going to say that um, we have embedded cognitive already into the Clearbank core. And our view, we completely support everything you say. Our view is that effectively you should be able to enable people to choose the cognitive service they want rather than dictate that you've got to be using a particular one. And I think that if we can get that spread out and get universal access, not necessarily to a common platform, but almost a common system, then you start to address this problem. The costs of managing identity, the, the costs of doing it improperly, financial services are enormous. I, there's, a, there's a stat that comes from a chap that runs a company called Scorechain, uh, where he was saying that uh, around $2 trillion a year is lost to uh, financial crime and fraud. Of that, we capture or see about 2% of that. Of that, we successfully prosecute a further 2% of that 2%. It is phenomenal how much money is being lost to just having poor identity. Everybody knows this is a problem, but we seem to try and fix it with more process rather than more digitization. Well, to, to, to look at that, and so I'm on the board of a company called DISC that has been working with a DWP. So our Department for Work and Pensions in the UK distributes 200 plus billion pounds a year to 20 million people. Around 5 million people don't have access to financial services. Around 2 million don't have a bank. The fraud, error, and waste cost of that is somewhere between 3% and 10%. So let's look at a number that's £15 billion that doesn't make it to a low-income community, of which we have around 3,000, and what's the social cost of the lack of that capital making its way to that community? Globally, we're looking more like a trillion dollars a year. So we have a trillion dollars of capital that's allocated to vulnerable people that doesn't make it there, what would we do from a transformational point of view on society of having those people actually get the financial services that they were due? It's staggering how big it is, and then you've got to work out why is there a market failure. Pretty interesting. So, um, Richard, um, at Microsoft, you guys have been uh, kind of helping people move away from the legacy technologies towards um, different ecosystems, towards cloud, towards uh towards the needs of customers more. I know you're partners with ClearBank. Reflect a little bit on some of John and, and Nick's comments for me there and, and, and help me help help the listeners understand, you know, can uh, changing how we do things be part of the journey? Yeah, I guess when I'm listening to this, what, I, what I'm thinking about is uh, an example we do with Temenos on microfinancing in Africa. Um, and they have uh, an example of the institutional banks uh, in, that serve that market really not addressing the vast majority of the population. It's not just sort of a small underserved community. It is a vast underserved community. And, and when you sort of go down there and you meet with these people, you know, the bankers and you have, you know, uh, planning meetings with them, etc. you know, they all kind of get it and they want to deal with it, but they can't afford to serve uh, that community. It just the maths doesn't work. So then when you, you look at the sort of the Temenos microfinance solution, which is used in Africa by a lot of housing associations, uh, what those firms are able to do is to give uh, very small loans to, to women and using telephony as well. So it's very much about empowering women in these communities, it seems, which allows them to sort of lift out of poverty, uh, use the, uh, the house, therefore, as an asset, which they can then sort of, you know, uh, buy education and, uh, and all the associated benefits. But it sort of came about because this cost to serve problem, which could be addressed when you have the cloud. And then, you know, these firms uh, will say, well, I'm worrying about, you know, my constituent here, who's the person getting a home, and I just let these other guys, you know, Temenos and Microsoft, worry about the security and the network and the 
all this kind of good stuff. So it sounds, you know, it's a bit the product from Microsoft, but it is part of that ability to make these two points perhaps come to life uh, because cost to serve is lower. I think that's, um, well, I really like the adverts, apart from the fact that Ben Robinson basically followed me around for about a year, like every airport I was in from, from Tamanos. He was just there, TV, everything. So clearly you guys kind of went big on that one. But I guess in terms of that idea of new technologies to enable you to actually bring about in proper inclusion, you know, if you can get the efficiencies correct in terms of actually what it costs you to run these platforms, then, you know, financial wellness is something for everybody really, isn't it? Yeah. And that's something, Claire, that you're speaking about today, isn't it? So you've, you're running a, a panel about dude. financial wellness. I know. Thanks for <laughs> stepping in. Um, what is it you're talking about and uh, who's on the panel? Uh, three key points uh, we'll talk about this afternoon. The first one is around uh, the digital opportunity, about getting more people uh, online and how it's solved for inclusion. The second one is how education is critical. And we talk a lot about online training, apps, and we talk a bit more about that. But I think, you know, what we, we run each year uh, a digital index where we survey one million of our consumers. So this year, uh, last week, we, we issued a second uh, version. And one of the interesting findings was that actually 45% of the, of the people we serve would prefer to turn to relatives in order to learn about the internet. Uh, so we can try to teach people digitally to go digital. But there is a reality where, you know, it's a kind of like when it's a, it's a relative or somebody nearby that is helping. And that's why we pledge our, our 2.5 million uh, digital champion as part of the UK digital strategy. And the, and the third point is really uh, around around the collaboration, which I think is at the key of what, what we've all talked, Nick or, or John, uh, because, you know, a lot of these topics, and I think Tim Berners-Lee was mentioning this morning that, you know, he really saw first uh, internet working when government, academia and corporate get together. So, you know, the, 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 the recipe, the magic recipe was there. But also, you know, for him, internet was taking up when he saw 20% of the people really embracing that. And that relates for me in, uh, in identity, but also in some of the uh, techniques in inclusion that I will talk about. Um, so I guess, you know, like, uh, let me elaborate a bit on, on these three points. So the first one, which is around the digital opportunity. Uh, I'm going to say something, David, that you know very well. <laughs> uh, because for me, digital, you know, one of the reasons I do this job is because digital is really an opportunity to remake the customer experience, simpler, easier, more inclusive. One of the first projects that Lloyd's launched when you were at Lloyd's uh, was personal finance management and budgeting, which is at the heart of um, financial wellness. Um, and what you will know better than me, <laughs> as probably the product manager, uh, is that it didn't take up so much. Uh, you know, it's like a population was interested about doing their budgeting online, but you know, there was still a margin. And they said, go back to this point about the wider adoption that Tim Berners-Lee was mentioning. You know, we're still in the margin and in the edges more than really a lot of people engaging with this with this type of tools. And I think that's what we have seen in fintech as well, where personal finance, personal finance management and budgeting um, have been there for a long time, um, but, you know, are, are not widely necessarily embraced. It's interesting that personal finance management used to be a feature. And actually, now it's becoming something that is just table stakes. It's not a part of the product as a feature. It's just something the product has to have. And everyone's kind of moved on and said, this is just part of designing a great product. It used to be the thing that was sort of slapped on over the top. Now it's, it's kind of baked into to really helping understand the customer's needs and, and build those end-to-end -end customer journeys. And to your point, Claire, it's changing the dynamic of how you engage with customers, isn't it? You know, I think that dialogue and the shift around that dialogue definitely has to uh, continue to evolve, doesn't it? 
And that's, that's interesting, you're both mentioning that because what we've seen with the second generation of fintech, um, and I will talk about what we are doing at Lloyd's, but is, is this two-way dialogue. And FCA find out uh, you know, that uh, in 2015, they were running a survey and text and mobile banking are really helping customers to reduce overdraft charges by 25%. Um, and we see these techniques of nudging working much more uh, with customers. So we see some startup, you know them, Digit, Monzo, Jason Gana, have a little love, Personetics, uh, that are really, you know, using these nudging techniques. And we see a different reaction and some of the customers shifting. Uh, and there is really this notion about how do you make it effortless for the customer? Um, so from a Lloyd's perspective, we have been trialing some of these nudging uh, capabilities and we've seen a really good response rate because basically they enable you to, you know, have good insight at your fingertips from things where it will take you probably more time to read your bank statement and understand, okay, when is my trial finished or when is my saving nudge arriving? And so how do you think about personalization and creating the infrastructure you need to enable personalization? Because I think some people really want those nudges. Some people want the bank to, to back off and leave them alone. Some people may have mental health challenges and really want to see that information. Some people will have um, kind of other kinds of family challenges and, and not need the information. That, that increase in flexibility seems to be something customers are pushing more for. How, how, how do you think about that? And I, and I throw that open to everybody else afterwards. How, how do you think about that? I think so. I think it's a good question. I think it's also early days. Um, I think it's like second generation was probably maturing last year. Uh, so we see this nudges uh, capability still being new. Uh, the trends of personalization is surely a trend that is coming. Um, I think you would just have to wait a bit more um, in order to see how it will play out and how it will unfold. Um, what I can say is go back, going back to the point of Nick. Uh, there is there, there are some challenges about what does it mean from a, a customer interaction perspective in the future. So you know we, we talk about open banking, about open data. Uh, so obviously this will open more opportunities for customers to choose the way they want to engage and they want their data to be consumed. So their primary uh, digital touch point. Uh, but you know like it, it's at the same time uh, you know going back to financial wellness and inclusion uh, there is a lot of education that is yet to do and I go back to my point around 45 percent uh, you know there is nine percent of the customer uh, of, of the UK population nine percent of the UK population is not in internet today which is approximately 10 million uh, of users we know that people that are financially capable and digitally capable will save in average uh, 84 pounds uh, versus uh, the ones that are not using digital that are 33 pounds. Uh, so it's not negligible. Uh, and as I was mentioning, you know, education could go and we do that uh, with uh, Money Farm UK uh, through online training apps for young adults that are really comfortable with digital. But the reality is uh, most of uh, people want to learn through the internet via face-to-face -face training. And that's why we launched our, our 2.5 million pledge uh, as part of the UK digital strategy. Um, I was going to ask about the the business case for this kind of thing, because if if really uh, people do end up using 25% less of their overdrafts and with the transparency shows them exactly where the money's going and so they make better decisions, does that not negatively impact, you know, a traditional bank's bottom line? Uh, and, and is that just something where you say, well, look, this is the way that customers are going. It is the right thing to do. Therefore, we're going to do it. Um, but it still must take, you know, someone pretty high up to say, well, you know, fine, let's do it. I think it's an interesting question, Jason. So obviously, Lloyd is uh, 28 million of customers in the UK, 12 million online, 8 million on mobile. You know, like our job is to leave no one behind, to make sure everybody is better off. When you use banking, we are happy when our customers, you know, are flourishing. 
when the when the or SME base, uh, which is probably not, uh, uh, you know, we, we want them to really take the advantage uh, of the internet. And for that, we've launched several partnerships because collaboration, as I was mentioning, is key. Uh, so we have the Digital Index, which we do in partnership with Dot Everyone, Top Neol, and the Good Things Foundation, uh, which is really about focusing uh, uh, to a population of inclusion. We also have the Digital Garage, uh, which we do in partnership with Google, where we, we run across the country a session uh, after work where uh, uh, people can uh, understand what are the usage of the digital tool. Uh, and I think Simon was mentioning it, but you know that our charity of the year is uh, Mental Health UK, because that's also part of uh, of thing we consider. So, you know, it's, it's, it's as I mentioned, it's our job to leave no one behind. And for us, uh, it's just, uh, you know, part of our strategic aim uh, to support uh, Britons uh, across, uh, across the country. Just one point. Um, I don't know if you know about this. There's a bank in Prague called Airbank. And a few years ago, they decided to put a red button on their app. It's a mobile bank and all the rest of it. And if you press the red button, it deleted all your bank charges. And so when this was launched, they thought, my God, you know, goodbye revenues. And it didn't happen. They had a few people pressing the red button. And then they phoned them up and said, could you just, you know, we know you pressed the red button. This isn't to say that you've, you know, we're going to recharge you. We just wanted to understand why you pressed the red button. And the response mostly was, well, we wanted to find out what would happen. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, don't put that near certain presidents. So, <laughs> yes, we are moving on. Um, but it was very, very interesting how they, then, then they could create a dynamic of conversation, you know, this strange culture of talking to your customers, to actually understand why they were using the app. They were being selective because just going out and emailing people and all the rest of it is impossible. They were then able to talk to their customers, understand the absolute benefits they were providing to them. And if the customer said, well, actually, I'm going to press the red button next month, that was fine. They could carry on. But they had very, very, very few people do that. Most of them understood the benefits and the services that were being offered, which they had just assumed delivered value to them, but after a telephone conversation understood the value that they were getting from them. It's really interesting because one of the things that uh, Andrew Sinea, who works for us at 11FS, was saying on a couple of podcasts ago is, I think pretty much every organization would love to do something like that, but not a lot of them have the infrastructure to be able to do that or doing it would just be hard. Um, do you think that um, we're seeing a shift in the market um, that even the bigger organizations would start to do where they look at their own internal infrastructure and say, actually, this isn't serving us so well anymore. There are better infrastructures out there. Is, is that something that is likely or are, they, or are the larger organizations likely to keep fighting with the infrastructure they've got? And to be fair to them, continuing to transform it as well. Well, I'm putting my hand on Richard's shoulder. We, we both hope that they don't do that. Um, there is, um, you know, when we work um, with any of the banks, and we have some very, very large banks now talking to us, uh, we're providing to them a migratory route through up onto the ClearBank cloud, sitting within the Microsoft environment, so that they can transition up with us as their bank partner. And that's a distinct difference to them going to a technology provider, because we're not saying to them, right, okay, you've got to get this done, it's going to cost you three million quid by next Tuesday, and then it's going to be another five or whatever. What we're saying to them is that you can move into this environment progressively with us, and you can take as long as you like. This is not about us tell it, selling you technology, it's about us moving you into the cloud. And if some of them say, well, actually, can we do it a bit quicker? Will you put a link back off your platform into our platform, because then we can do this stuff? The answer is no, we just will not do that. Because the moment we land back a link to a legacy platform, we kill the innovation direction that we're taking this project forward on. There's, um, there's an interesting 
a cross-reference here to capital markets because we often talk about bank and, and, and sort of leave out the capital markets piece. So on Claire's point that I, I see having been in a big bank and now being out of a big bank, I understand what Wall Street wants. We all understand the street wants returns. And it's, it would be an interesting 11FS research piece to do how much do the banks make off overdraft charges as a percentage of their revenue within the retail bank. And I think you'll find it's quite high. So therefore, if you were to strip that out, the street's going to have a fit. Similar things occurred in capital markets. So capital markets innovation started in the 90s with a guy called Jim Lehman at Salomon who invented something called Fix. You could think of Jim as the Satoshi of capital markets uh, because he's just one guy who created an entire protocol that's now used by everybody. And what you saw uh, was Goldman, Salomon, Morgan building their own infrastructure and then a gradual evolution where specialists then built specialist firms Goldman bought SLK for the Ready Plus platform. You roll that forward 20 years, you now don't have capital markets firms running on practically any of their own technology stack because the ability to innovate and create new technology isn't a core skill set for banks to do because, very simply put, if I create a platform for credit derivatives trading, I can sell it to 20 banks. If I create it for JP Morgan, I can just use it at JP Morgan. So... What we're starting to see, interestingly, is a parallel to capital markets where people, because of the market failure wanting to be addressed by the politicians, starting this journey that has been underway for 20 years in another part of the group. And what I think we'll see, which is clearly why Microsoft and others are creating these platforms, is it's already been done before. So the question is, if if I'm a, a Lloyd's, is how do I unplug infrastructure that costs me a fortune such that I can deliver to the purpose of the bank because without a purpose you're going to fail so you've got this do I rip and replace do I rip out and then use an external platform so every single capital markets firm in the world runs its algorithms co-located in a data center that they don't own on technology that they don't own built on algorithms that they don't own and that's because they can deliver on their actual promise. It, it creates somewhat of an existential question then as to what a bank is or, or what these, you know, what a, what a big bank is all about if it's not got its own infrastructure. Because you could point to the capital markets guys and say, well, they're running their algorithms. And I saw a, an article at the weekend to say, I think it was the CEO of Goldman Sachs has been meeting Eric Schmidt regularly and that Goldman Sachs is going to move to be an API uh, for risk, if you want to offload risk or take more risk on, we'll provide it to you via API. What does it? What's the bank do? So it's it's very interesting in the and I'll go to I've I've banked with Barclays since the age of seventeen, and I will continue to bank with Barclays because I trust them as an organisation. Banks are about trust and brand. So you know, again, I can go back. It's it's the work that Nick's new customers because Nick's not going to have customers that are customers, retail customers. He's going to have firms that need to acquire customers. Claire's spot on in that Lloyd's have to get the customer journey right. Underneath it, it's once you've got trust in the customer experience, it's very interesting to look at, do we need fractional reserve banking? That's what the Bank of England works about. So the there's a very big question, which is, do we need fractional reserve banking or do there's 60%, if we're going with 
uh, Theresa May's statement of ordinary working families moved from the jams, 60% of the population have more about a month to six months of cash in the bank to buffer. They aren't looking at any fantastic lending products. They need the most efficient way to manage their finances, pay for things, and then get paid. And so... Does that suggest then that there are new business models waiting to be to be grasped? And actually, um, there's only one part of the equation is changing the cost part of the equation, which is what a lot of, I think, fintech has focused on. You know, the fintech 2.0 has been about changing how banks and financial services broadly in insurance and, and across the market and wealth operates and, and transforming its cost base. But actually, there's some beginnings of new business models there that that's really strike me as being where the excitement is. As UK or European financial services, we're going to get smoked by ant financials of this world because the customer experience is phenomenal and it fits in with life. And if you look at all the wallets, which from, what's your new product called? Pulse. Pulse. And how can you get access to that? <laughs> yeah, 11fs.com, of course. <laughs> but if you start to look at that, then you realize that this is coming this way and, and they've nailed it because it's part of your day-to-day life. But, but there's also a link back to that infrastructure piece because actually the amazing delivery of, uh, of a customer journey where you're on their side needs needs a business model that doesn't rely on massive fees and charges, which therefore needs infrastructure that's super cheap. And all of that connects together because that new infrastructure then enables you to deliver amazing customer journeys. So it seems to be this sort of virtuous, virtuous cycle. Richard, did, is, yeah, I mean, Richard you, did go pale with a super cheap comment. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that's what we talk about. It's sort of, you know, a hyperscale cloud provider is doing this, you know, and just is getting sort of the economies of scale. And so, the, you know, the price goes down, it's consumption based. You know, literally you can run code and you pay for the amount of time the code is executing. You know, this is just completely different economics. So that, as you say, that e- infrastructure that's being provided. And, and, and really, if you've got sensors, real-time data, uh, data-centric organization um, done you know, in a trusted environment and secure, uh, then you suddenly start to get assemblies of value chains and um, you know, decisions being made in the context, as we're seeing with AMP Financial, you know, in a scenario, bit of banking, but it's happening in real time. So people can then start to do kind of spot auctions for, do I want to give you that loan? Uh, but I've done all the processing and analysis of whether I want you as a customer, I just give it to you. So then you sort of think, well, how does then, how do we make money? Well, that's because then you can go onto a global stage. So it becomes, you know, I know we're all on the anti-globalization kick, but it actually goes even more to globalization in a sense, because, you know, Barclays could be a, a proper global player again. But Richard, could that really happen? Because the, every time, uh, maybe this is changing, and maybe I'm really looking to your experience here and what you're hearing, because um, certainly when I was in banking and before that, when I was selling into banks, cloud was something that wasn't new. You know, it hasn't. It has been around for at least 10 years. Are organizations taking this seriously? Would they sort of use a new platform instead of their infrastructure? Because it was the guys from Lavaris that were saying that how many um, attempts are there a year that are made to replatform, and of those, nearly 80 to 90% fail. Um, and they, they get all the way, and when they're going to pull the switch and when they're going to go live, that's when everybody backs out. Because if, if it goes wrong, that's it. That's your banking license gone. So the, the, it's a really high-stakes game changing your infrastructure. That's why it's a migration. But, I mean, the cost stuff is that we did some work which we discussed in a conference we ran last year that um, our physical we have two UK physical data centers the costs of one of those data centers alone is 44 years of the cost of cloud 
And that wow. is that is a shed load of money. A shed load of money. Now, why can't we shovel it all into the cloud? Because Rich would be delighted to for us to do that. Because we can't, because we have to go through the regulatory protection, the market protection, systemic risk challenges, and all the rest of it that we face as a clearing bank. I think that the access to services and the way that banking services and banking technology is consumed is completely up for grabs. Completely up for grabs. And the historic days, you know, if people listening to this actually work for software companies selling banking technology, I apologize, but the historic days of getting big dollar sales from big banks to put in yet another legacy, I think are coming to an end. What you need to do is to be onto an agile platform where you start with a particular product set. You may actually invent a new product set as part of a consortium to change the marketplace, then to drive that product set forward and use the revenues you generate from that to fund your migration into the new the new environment. So you're saying in theory it's not Big Bang, migrate either product by product or segment by segment, or even just put a new segment on there and go, go, go build I, something. Listen, you guys are much cleverer than I am. I don't know of a Big Bang project that's ever worked. Indeed, indeed. Well, so indeed we, we've talked to a number of 11FS clients about interesting strategies for, yeah, for doing it. It pays a lot of consultancy fees. But hey, perhaps it, that's the work. Yeah, that's 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 hopefully where we can play. Uh, well. There's a there's a really interesting one here that if we get the customer experience truly open, I'm on my distributed ledger network, and I have a bad experience. And here's the threat and the opportunity for the big brand names. I have a bad experience. Where's the little button that I move my account from Barclays to Lloyd's? There's no reason why not. The balance is all sat the Bank of England, ultimately. If you've got the customer base right now, you have to be doing what Claire's doing. You have to dominate the customer experience because all the back end will change over time. So if you're in the lead at the moment, you've got to protect the lead through the customer experience is my... So we had um, Tom Blomfeld from Monzo on um, the podcast maybe about uh, 10 or 11 shows ago, and, and he was saying that there'll probably be two types of banks in the future. One will be the marketplace customer experience bank, and the other one will be the infrastructure bank. And actually, what we're seeing with the likes of ClearBank is, and, and Oak North and others is that they, that infrastructure bank now exists, and indeed the, the brand banks are now starting to really focus on that. You can almost see the separation. But it strikes me that there's another imperative here. Like if, if Ant Financial, who have a home market of a billion customers, um, started with e-commerce so they have a different business model, we're able to use the data they had in e-commerce to launch a payments business. We're able to use the data they had from payments and e-commerce to start lending. And then from lending, they were starting to able to do wealth for their small businesses. They've, they're a bank without a banking license with, with a home market of a billion customers. Like that is a business model that can any banks compete with that scale without buddying up together? Is that something that's possible? And is that a credible threat? I mean, Claire, I don't know if you think that that's a credible threat, if you think it's something that's on the horizon, keeping an eye on. What are your thoughts on, on that as a concept? I think, so interestingly, there was a point of JSON, but everything we are talking about, what is underpinning is collaboration. So I think, you know, what Nick talked about is collaboration, what Richard talked about is collaboration, what John talked about is collaboration. Uh, banks have been owning, you know, the segment of the value chain end-to-end. -end, and one of the things they are very good at is partnering in order to make the customer experience better and in order to deliver this, this, this experience and the banking services. I don't think this will go away. I think, you know, like you, you trust your bank for a reason. Uh, and there is a regulation that go with it uh, that is there. At the same time, 
you have a market dynamic where clearly, you know, like uh, over the past 10 years, uh, the giants of the world have become Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. Uh, and, and their business model is not built by things they own or by things they do. It's built by uh, collaborating across different actors with a heart uh, of uh, business model, which is the data. Um, and I think, I think that's, uh, that's interesting, but the point, the point that is important is they're still looking to collaborate across the industry. Uh, and one of the trends we've seen going this year, Simon, is the fintech business model shifting from B2C and a lot of you know, disruption conversation uh, to a lot of B2B conversation and a B2B product. Uh, and so you know, that's a conversation we're having with ClearBank. In general, I'm not, saying, I'm not specific here, but uh, you know, like saying like some of the partners are FI. And, and the last point really I want to add is, yeah, there is, there is a timeline for all of that, for open banking, for identity. Uh, so, you know, my observation is uh, we, we always work hard in order to make uh, the customer experience more effortless. So we launched, for example, Touch ID, uh, which is biometrics at your fingertip in order to uh, access more easily your finance. Uh, we launched EIDNV, so the selfie authentication online. Uh, so uh, because we identify that some of the customers were less likely to go to a branch to finish their opening bank process. Uh, but at the end of the day, when it touched on questions like identity, uh, I don't think a single bank is going to solve it by itself or find a business model for identity. Uh, when you look at Canada, where they have Secure Key, for example, uh, it's clearly a consortia that is between government, uh, again, academia, going back to the point of Tim Berners-Lee, and banks, stroke uh, telco, telco in, the, in some countries. So uh, this, this, this infrastructure question, uh, I think, and, and we see that uh, working with the government through open banking, through the fintech delivery panel, uh, through uh, the, the trade finance uh, chaired by uh, Nathan Bursuk uh, uh, in the UK, are more uh, questions that you have to ask at industry level. Lawrence was mentioning it this morning, but the EU have just launched uh, a research commission where everybody can participate in order to answer their survey about fintech uh, and how can you make it better. And I think that's all our responsibility to go online, fill this survey uh, and push our ideas uh, to make it uh, better. Spot on, Claire. I think the main thing that's sort of happening is the whole industry seems to be getting more intelligent, doesn't it? I think, you know, banks are getting more intelligent about what they do and don't need. You know, I think the veneer of sort of fintech has sort of changed slightly and the, you know, it's not this sort of panacea of a fix for, for kind of everything and every illness. I think all of the vendors in the mix are getting better at knowing what banks actually need. Um, and it just sort of feels like the, the whole industry is kind of stepping up, which is fantastic. So, and maybe on that positive note, let's end and pass around the room. So, John, where can we learn more and uh, where can people find you on the internet? My primary driver in terms of market failure is ID2020. So that's ID2020.org. I'm also a fellow at Connection Sciences at MIT. So connection.mit.edu. And thank you for today. No problem. Thanks for coming. Richard, where can we learn more? Uh, well, Richard Piers and I would be remiss not to say find me on LinkedIn. Indeed. Yeah. Your new home, indeed. Uh, Nick, where can we learn more about ClearBank? Uh, very, very simple. It's clear.bank. Very nice. Claire, where can they learn more? You can go in our digital hub, uh, Lloyds Banking Digital, where you will find uh, stories about our colleagues and, uh, and our customer. And you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn, of course, or Twitter. Fantastic. And obviously, you probably know where to find Lawrence, don't you? But thanks for joining us, Lawrence. Shame you couldn't make it to the end. Thanks very much for your time, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.